This is episode 521 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. One of the most difficult aspects of the Christian life is prayer, and this leads to some questions that we need to answer. For example, how can I pray without ceasing as the scriptures command? How do I know God will hear my prayer? And most importantly, based on 1 John 5, 14 through 15, how can I be sure my prayer is in accordance with the will of God? For if it is, I know with confidence God will grant my prayer. But if it is not, well, that's another story altogether. Today, we will look at the great man of prayer, George Mueller, and the six steps he took to make sure he knew the will of God before he began praying. And by applying these biblical steps to our own life, we can make sure we approach God in prayer according to his will and not our own. And once we discover this truth, we can have great confidence that we have the mind of Christ in our prayer life and fully experience the blessings that follow which are answered prayers. So join us today as we learn these six steps to discover the will of God in our prayer as we strive for the higher Christian life and leave Laodicea behind. We've... uh been looking at a particular topic now, started two weeks ago. Actually, we started this topic probably a year or so ago called the higher Christian life. And what the higher Christian life begins with is pretty much a revival that takes place in each of us. The phrase higher Christian life comes from the Keswick movement, uh, which was in the late 1800s. It lasted for about 40 years. It spawned the people like Oswald Chambers and Andrew Murray, Amy Carmichael, many many, many great devotional writers and evangelists and missionaries of that time. The idea was the fact that rather than plateauing in our Christian life and being somewhat lukewarm, that it was really possible for us to first rekindle the joy and the excitement we had when we first got saved and to move on into uncharted territories. There was a huge backlash against the whole higher Christian life movement, the Christian Missionary Alliance denomination was basically born out of that. And the backlash came from the fact that people thought that they were basically placing Christians in two camps. You're either spiritual or carnal. You're either, of course, Paul talked about that, but that's another issue. You're either spiritual or carnal. You're either on your game or off your game. You're either striving for Christ-likeness or you're not. And it made mainstream Christianity feel uncomfortable with that. But the reality is that we're all on this continuum and everybody's on a continuum separately. We know the closest we've ever been to the Lord and hopefully that is today. And if that is today, then you're experiencing revival and moving forward in this higher Christian life, hoping that tomorrow you'll be closer to him than you are today. If you look at your life and you think about a time which you were closer to him, and it ain't today, it was last week or three weeks ago or years ago, then it means that we're not even where we once were spiritually. And with things getting as dark as they are in their culture right now, more than anything, we need to be on top of our game. Would you agree? We need to be light that shines as bright as possible in the ever encroaching darkness. As I share with you, um, a couple of weeks ago, the Lord really spoke to me about the higher Christian life and basically said that what we're missing, what I'm missing, 
is the impetus. You know, I'm looking at the goal, but the impetus of how that happens. And that's a simple phrase called revival. Not revival like we call in some evangelist and he preaches messages about salvation, but a revival of rekindling where we used to be and moving on into a deeper fervency with him. Evangelism, soul winning, prayer, everything changes when we've had this encounter with Christ, when we're revived and we want to experience him like we haven't in a long time. And so I shared with you that when we're looking at this issue of revival, this was two weeks ago, that uh, there's some questions that we have. What is a Christian revival? And how important it is to be revived in the life of a believer? We know how important it is to be revived emotionally, how to be revived in your relationship with your wife or your husband, how to be revived physically if you're like running a marathon or you know, the fourth quarter of a ball game. We know how important it is to get that infusion of vitality and, and energy in our life in every other aspect except spiritually. Spiritually, for some reason, we don't see a need for that. And so the best way to understand revivals is to look at past revivals, which is some things we're going to do. What happens during a revival? What kind of change takes place? We talked about the first, second, and third great awakening in our nation and how bars shut down and how crime became lower in various areas because more people were spiritually minded and more people got saved. The question is, how does a spiritual revival take place, and what are the effects of a spiritual revival? And if, it, if we know how it takes place, and we know the benefits of that, then the impetus would be, how can I bring that in my life? How can I understand God in a more deeper way? How can I surrender myself, the tenets of the higher Christian life, surrender myself and just be focused on Him alone? Two weeks ago, we dealt with some of this. We defined what a revival was as a quick refresher. A revival refers to a spiritual awakening from a state of dormancy or a state of not being on your game spiritually or stagnation in the life of a believer. The key to revival is a resurgence of faith in a believer, not faith for salvation, but faith in the word and character of God. Revival takes place many times when we trust God for his word, at his, uh, at his word, we step out into the unknown and hold on by faith, hold on to something by faith when we would normally be quaking or nervous or manipulating things on our own and just trust God. It is literally, shared this two weeks ago, it is taking God at his word and living your life in accordance to his truth and not what we think, feel, or want. It's not about me. It's about him. It's not about how I think he's going to work it out. It's about him. It's not about me placing what I want and demanding him respond what, the way I need it or else I'm out of here. I'm done. You're not a good God. Doesn't work that way. Revival is surrendering all to him. And the key to revival is faith, a resurgence of faith not in faith itself, but in the absolute character of God. Two weeks ago, I shared with you about half a dozen scriptures that show in the life of a Christian in the New Testament that it was okay for us to learn from each other. The Apostle Paul, follow me, do you remember? As I follow Christ. 
talks about the examples of other people. We see someone who's where we want to be and we align our life up with them. We learn from them as they learn from Christ. And soon when, when we are where they are, then others will learn from us. It's a parenting. It's a discipleship process. The problem today is that we're all kind of okay. We're all kind of lukewarm. We're all kind of satisfied where we are right now. So who do we learn from? How do I learn about faith? And as I shared with you a couple weeks ago, for me, the hero of faith, at least in the last three centuries, is a man named George Mueller. We talked about him at great length. We talked about the fact that he prayed in over $100 million worth of uh, funds to, to uh, create and house and take care of over 10,000 orphans in this, this podunk, nasty town back then called Bristol, England. Five different orphan houses. I showed you the houses and they were incredible, were they not? You know, um, they were just massive. And the whole, the whole reason why he did this is what he wanted to do is show people through just an orphan house, it could have been something else, that God truly, truly cares about us and our practical needs. And we talked about how faith and prayer kind of intertwines together. We looked especially the importance of um, understanding praying according to the will of God, which again leads to a couple practical questions, such as how do we know if what we pray is God's will? Just think, what if you knew it was God's will, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you had this bold confidence that what you're praying for is God's will. And if you had that confidence, you would rush out in reckless abandon, knowing God is empowering you and behind you the whole way. The problem is in my life, and maybe many of you can relate to it, is I'm not really sure. I know what my will is. I know it seems like a really good idea. I know what I think would be pretty cool. I'm not really sure about God's will. And it's really hard sometimes to determine what I want versus what he wants. Because if he wants something different than what I want, I get upset and I get angry. I don't like waiting. It, it doesn't seem to make sense. So how in the world can I have this kind of confidence to be able to pray, like it says in 1 John 5, that I know exactly what God's will is? How do I develop some sort of life of prayer and, and have this life of prayer in such a way that my prayers are answered and other people will recognize that God is still concerned about the big things and even the mundane things in our life? This was George Mueller. He had to pray in breakfast for the kids every day. He took meticulous notes about every single answered prayer because that was the whole purpose of the orphan home was to show overwhelmingly how great God is in ministering to these children. And so he, he, he anguished in prayer. He recorded in his journals most of the time. He never told his wife about it because he didn't want any outside pressure to do something other than what God wanted just massive amount of writing. And he would talk about how there was no money. You remember all the stories. There was no money and something would happen and a miracle would take place and people would come and they'd be satisfied for the days. Sometimes he would pray for months, months, just to get a clear understanding whether he should build another orphan house. I mean, his, his life was amazing. So what we're going to do today is two things. We're going to look at a few scriptures, actually just two. 
on prayer and faith. And then we're going to try to see how George Mueller put all that into practice and see if we can learn from someone who's been where we would like to be regarding faith and confidence with God and see if we can glean some truth from him. First scripture, very familiar one, 1 John 5, 14 and 15. I shared this scripture with you last week, and I want you to really take it to heart. This is the word of God. This is a promise. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit, written through the pen of John. This is truth for us to live by. This is not just, oh, that's nice. It's something that we can bet everything on. And what it talks about is confidence, bold confidence. We understand that we had this confidence to boldly go into the Holy of Holies because our sins have been forgiven. How would you like to have confidence to know that whatever you prayed for, God would answer? And the reason is because you're praying according to the will of God. No matter what you asked, you knew that your petitions of God the desires of your heart, what God has given you lined up perfectly with what he wanted. And therefore you had this assurance that going before you is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords opening doors that you thought would continually be closed. I've never known anyone that talked about this kind of confidence, but the scripture says it can be ours. George Mueller had that kind of confidence. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, the assurance that if we ask anything according to his will, and that's the caveat, according to his will, we know that he hears us. He's not an aloof God. He hears whatever we ask. And we know that if he hears us, like a loving father, whatever we ask, it doesn't matter how bold it is because we know it's according to his will. We know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. His answer will be yes. We have confidence because we're going to ask in confidence. We know that it's his will. Therefore, he hears us and he will answer our prayers. What if you had that kind of confidence in God? Well, I do. I have confidence that God can do anything he wants to do. I just don't have the confidence that my prayer life lines up with his will. I don't know if my emotions are involved. I don't know if I have some sort of subjective feeling. I don't know if what seems like a good idea to me may be a bad idea to God. I have a hard time differentiating between God's voice and my voice. Anybody here suffer with that too? What is your will? What is my will? What if I had the confidence to know, as the Bible says here, that I know that my prayer is his will. Would that not change everything in our life? Everything. Confidence according to his will. George Mueller lived that way. How can we learn from him? How did he line his life up with this passage and do it in such a way that he accomplished, or God accomplished everything through him by nothing but confident prayer? Verse number Two, from James. Yeah, but this is my experience. This is, you know, it talks about great confidence and praying according to the will of God, but it doesn't really work that way for me because it seems like every time that I pray, God either says no or wait or are you out of your mind? 
doesn't really work that way. I've asked God things that I thought it was his will and it didn't turn out that way. And so maybe his will is different than mine. I'm so confused. I don't even know what to do anymore. Here's what James 4 says. It begins, about, it begins talking about selfishness. Why, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasures that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet, you do not have because you do not ask. Okay, I got that. There's an element of faith involved in that. I don't have because I don't ask. So, okay, I'm going to ask God. I'm going to view you as my papa. I'm going to view you as my you know, beloved father in the sky. I'll view you as anything possible. I know that God, if I were you, I would do this for me. Surely you must love me as much as I love you. And then still his answer is no. Why is that? I must have, I must ask to have, but sometimes I ask and I don't receive. You ask and do not receive, which leads to depression. Why? Why don't I receive? Because you ask amiss. Remember last week? You ask with wicked motives. You ask because you ask, and it's obviously not God's will. And it goes on to define in James what amiss means. It means that you want this to spend on your pleasure. And this is a word we get hedonism from, some sort of sensual pleasure or gratification. You ask because it's all about you. It can't be about you. I mean, even when God answers our prayers, ultimately, it is to bring him glory through us. How do I know the difference? How did George Mueller know the difference? How can we figure out how to not ask and then not receive because we're asking with wrong motives? How can I know? How can I have the confidence that when I pray, it's according to his will? I don't want to ask amiss, because if I do, I'm just doing it for me. I want it to be God's will. How do I go about doing that? So we look at this passage, these two passages, and we can come up with two conclusions. Conclusion number one is when you pray amiss, using the biblical frame, uh, phrase, it is not according to God's will. If it was according to God's will, you would receive. But since you don't receive, and James tells us why we don't receive, because we're asking selfishly or wickedly or maliciously, then I know that if I ask amiss, it is not according to God's will. Bad news. But point two is the good news. If I do pray according to God's will, he gives me the confidence to know that he hears our prayers and he will answer our prayers no matter what they are. Okay. With me so far? You must have questions like I do. I'm looking at this, I'm asking the Lord about it, and I'm saying, okay, I, I, I got that. It kind of makes sense, but I have some questions. These are questions for me. You may relate to them also. Question number one, how can I know for certain I'm praying according to God's will? I mean, it'd be really great, like a stud finder, you know, that... It's like you take it across the wall, not God's will, not God's will, beep, there it is, right there, I'm praying right here. And then, they, you know, 18 inches, like beep. And, I mean, it'd be great if we had something like that. It doesn't work that way. How do I know that what I'm praying 
is according to his will. I mean, it seems like it is. It seems like it'd be a really good idea. I mean, I feel comfortable about it. I mean, I, why wouldn't you do that, God? And then we pray, and sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no. And if you get the door slammed in your face multiple times in prayer, it's a natural reaction to quit praying and to handle things your way and then ask God to bless your efforts. And then all we're doing after that is praying God to get us out of the jams that we made. How do I know that I'm praying according to his will? How can I make sure that I'm not self-deluded into thinking what I want is what God wants? How can I differentiate between my the voice in my head that comes from me and the voice of the Holy Spirit. I mean, is there some way to know? And when I pray, how can I tell the difference? Surely that's happened to you before. You're praying and all of a sudden this idea comes to you. It's happened to me, the idea comes like, yeah, that's it, that sounds great. The reason why it sounds great is because it's exactly what I wanna have happen. That sounds wonderful, I know what I'm gonna do. That must be you, God. And then I tell it to my wife, and she looks at me and she simply says, have you prayed about this? And I go, I thought I did. No, I really, I was just listening to my own mind. I wasn't even surrendering myself to determine what God wants. I have an agenda. I'm taking it to the throne of glory to get him to, to work things out in my favor. How do I understand the difference between those two? And is there some sort of resource? By the way, there is, and it's holding it in your lap right now interpreted by the Holy Spirit, is there some sort of resource that can help me understand the will of God? And if so, how can I avail myself to that resource? You'll be surprised how much time George Mueller spent studying God's word. I shared with you two weeks ago that he read the Bible through cover to cover over 200 times. He did not use commentaries. He did not have logo software at that time. He did not uh, listen to Spurgeon sermons that are written, he simply asked the Holy Spirit to reveal the truth to him, and the Holy Spirit did. I was going to read to you a segment, a large segment of George Mueller's testimony about uh, how he answered these questions in his own life, but I'm, uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you where you can find it if you're interested. After George Mueller prayed and they built the first orphan house, it housed 300 um, orphans. If you remember correctly, he basically, he and his wife rented another apartment and they put 30 more orphans in there. They put, had it up to 120. Then they bought a bunch of property that was given to them or that the Lord provided for them. And they built this massive orphan house, which housed uh, 300 children. If you ever, if you go on georgemuller.org, I think it is, you'll find pictures of all these, the bedrooms and, you know, these, the kitchens and all that kind of stuff. It was really massive. And George Mueller decided that uh, maybe the Lord wanted a second orphan house to be built, which would house an additional 700. It was his desire to be able to minister to 1,000 children, be able to take 1,000 children off the street, be able to preach and, and, and minister and disciple 1,000 children, yet he didn't know if it was God's will. He prayed for over seven months just for the go-ahead. He had no money. As a matter of fact, during that seventh month's time, four times as much money went out as came in, and they were very distressful at that time, just continually praying that God would even meet their daily needs. And yet here he was thinking about doing, God wants him to do a, another orphan house. He writes down in his journals almost weekly the struggles that he was having. They are phenomenal reading. 
and you can find them all on the internet if you want, I strongly suggest that you, uh, that you do that. George Mueller was asked one day, what is the secret of your service to God? How can you accomplish so much? And again, I shared this with you two weeks ago, the pastoring a small church, managing uh, an orphan house of, uh, you know, that was ministering to you know, thousands and thousands of kids, five at one time, all the employees that were involved in that, they had to feed them and close them and wash all the clothes. There's pictures of these ladies out there with these bed sheets, hundreds of them that they had to take outside, you know, just to be able to clean the sheets. It was a massive undertaking that would demand a committee to handle it. And yet he did it all on his own. And he spent hours hours alone with the Lord each single day. Who in the world has time to do that when there's all these voices of corporate America crying at us saying, we got to keep this machine rolling. Money wasn't endowed to him. He didn't know what was coming in. He had to pray in every single cup of milk that these kids had every single day. And so when they asked him, what's the secret of your service? How do you manage all this? I mean, what kind of, of degree that you have allows you to, to do all this kind of stuff. Here's what he says. Very careful. Listen to this. He says, there was, uh, he says, first of all, there was a day when I died. I utterly died. I died to George Mueller, his opinions, his preferences, his taste, and his will. Not only that, I died to the world. I died to the world's approval and its censure. I died to the approval or blame of even my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied to show myself approved only to God. Only to God. Why? Because a servant of God has but one master. Not what I want, not the house that I live in, not the money I set aside for retirement, not the business I run, not the kids that I'm raising, not how I dress, not, not the, the sports that I like or the entertainment that I do. None of that matters. None. I died to everything. It's the key to the higher Christian life. It's this absolute surrender of yourself. I decrease, he must increase. I step aside, the Holy Spirit fills the void. George Mueller lived that way. There was a point in time in his life when he literally died. One of the things he will tell you that um, when he got saved, he said he wasted the first six years of his spiritual life reading books about God written by men. And he says, no, I, I found myself enthralled by those. And I put those aside and only read God's word. And he said, it was at that point, everything in his life changed. It's not good or bad for George Mueller. It was good and best and best. He continued, the primary business I must attend to every day is to fellowship with the Lord. No, no, you've got meetings you've got to go to. You've got to make sure that everything's running well and organized. You've got to get all the kids in there and, and handle behavioral problems, determine what you're going to teach them in school that day. There's so much work to do. You've got to manage all the work, the output, the doing. And George Mueller said, no, no, I can't do any of that unless, first of all, I have fellowship with him. My source of power is him. The first concern is not how much I might serve the Lord in the things that I do, but how my inner man might be nourished. Because if my inner man is not nourished, I can't do anything, anything. I'm always amazed as when Elijah was absolutely burnt out on the Mount Carmel deal and you know, he runs 25 miles to 
that Jezreel and Jezebel wants to kill him. And he's so depressed after this high point. And he basically is crying out saying, Lord, just take my life. It's over. I'm done. This is before God revealed himself to him in the mouth of the cave, if you remember. And an angel visited him. And do you remember what the angel said to him? Eat. Eat. You wore out. You need your own nourishment. He was talking about physical nourishment at that time. But if you're so consumed with yourself, you've got nothing to give to others. And George Mueller says, it's not how much I give because they will take from me until I'm dry. It's how I'm nourished in him, my fellowship with him. Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. And that's exactly the way he lived. And so he was asked um, to share how he can determine the will of God in his life. This is George Mueller's answer to the question, how I determine the will of God, how I can have the confidence to pray and knowing that God hears me and God will answer my prayers. And I think you will find them greatly encouraging. Number one, I seek at the beginning to get my heart in such a state that it has no will of its own in regards to a given matter. I have died to George Mueller. I've died to my wants and my, my desires. When I'm asking God to do something, I don't care what he does. I don't have a, a, a dog in this fight. It is absolutely up to God and God alone. He continues, nine-tenths of the trouble with people is just here. Nine-tenths of the difficulties are overcome when our hearts are ready to do the Lord's will, whatever it may be, whatever it may be. When one is truly in this state, it is usually but a little way to the knowledge of what his will is. When you get to the point where you have no will of your own in a matter, and you truly, not just in words only, God, will you please help me get this job because a really good job is going to pay a lot of money and I've always wanted this job. It's going to be fantastic. I, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You don't mean that. I mean, we, we, we tack that on the end, just like, Lord, would you please let me win the lottery today so I can make $20 billion? And if you do, I'll give like 15% to the church in Jesus' name. But Jesus ain't involved in that prayer request. You know, but the fact is we tack these things on the end. When you truly, George Mueller says, get to the point where it is whatever your will is, God. I'm your servant. I have no will, preference, desire, wants. I'm just doing what you want me to do like a slave to a master, like a dutifully, uh, a dutiful employee to its boss. You tell me where to go. You tell me what to do. And I will do it with, to my best of my ability. He says that once you get to that point, discovering God's will is not that far off. Nine-tenths of the problem is getting to that point. I can attest to that. It's really hard to surrender your will when you're going to the Lord to pray for, pray for something, is it not? Number two, having done this, I do not leave the results to feelings or simple impressions. Again, this is his terminology if some of it looks cumbersome. If I do, I make myself liable to great delusions. I, wanna, I, want, I don't want to do this because I think I should. I feel I should. It, it's something that, that seems right to me. I want to make sure that I'm not focusing on any of those things at all. I want you to speak. When I was, first got saved, one of the heroes of my generation was a man named Keith Green. Do you remember him? 
He was an uh, incredible singer, died at the age of 28 rather tragically. He uh, had a record contract with Decca Records when he was 10 years old. He was going to be the next teen heartthrob, but Donny Osmond beat him to it. And uh, his life is, if you read his testimony and listen to his songs, it's just an amazing account of someone totally surrendered to him. There was a point in time when his life, in his life when he decided to give up music. What? His wife Melody said. That, that, that's, no, what? No, you don't understand. Music is my gift, and music opens doors for me, and that's what I've always been. Maybe God doesn't want me to do music anymore. Maybe that's a crutch. Maybe that's just something that defines me, something that, that I enjoy doing. Maybe God has something else planned for me. So for six months, six months, he didn't do any concerts, anything at all, and he would just go home at his piano and play songs to the Lord each night, and, and he did not want just to assume this was God's will because it's always been. He didn't want to rely on his feelings or, or impressions. Instead, he wanted to specifically hear from God, and he did. And the rest, of course, is history. Number three. I seek the will of God through or in connection with the word of God. Very wise man George Mueller was, and he, he lays out for us the importance of not just waiting on some esoteric experience that we claim comes from the Holy Spirit. It all has to be connected with his word. That's the resource illuminated by the Holy Spirit. He says the spirit and the word must be combined. If I look to the Spirit alone without the Word, I lay myself open to great delusions also. Can't tell you the number of times I've heard people say, oh, God told me something, God told me to do this, and it's something totally ungodly, and then all of a sudden when things go bad for him, well, God told me what not to do what you were doing, and God tells me this and tells me that, but it's not based up with a finite word. You open yourself up to great delusions of feelings or oppressions or had this warm little burning in my heart, and so therefore, that must be God. That has to be God. I'm driving down the road, and a truck came by, and the number on the truck was 777. That's a sign from God, and so therefore, I'm going to do something. It doesn't work that way. Word of God always has to be coupled with the interpretation of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit guides us at all, he says, he will do it according to the scriptures and never contrary to them. Never. George Mueller found God's will by reading and studying his word. Just reading and reading and reading. Well, I don't enjoy reading it. Yeah, I understand that. But the more you read it, the more it becomes alive to you. And that's what George Mueller says. For those people who struggle with reading God's word, you have to read it even more because only then will it speak to you and the Holy Spirit will illuminate it to you and you'll be able to understand the will of God. Number four, he says, I take, account, I take into account providential circumstances. In George Mueller's case, it was, and as I shared with you, um, plague had gone through the town. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of people had died. There were thousands of orphans uh, at Bristol at that time. He was looking for a way to somehow glorify God through just prayer alone so other people would see that God still answers prayers. And he looked at the need, and the need was children right then. So he looked at the providential circumstances and decided maybe this is what you want me to do. This is the vehicle that you're going to use to show yourself magnanimous. These often plainly indicate God's will in connection with his word and spirit. Exactly what happened with uh, George Mueller. And then, number five, 
I asked God in prayer to specifically reveal his will to me, specifically. George Mueller says, the key to getting specific answers is to ask specifically, not generally, but very specific. He talks about that. He talks about in his writings, we would never do this because it seems mundane and we don't want to bother God with the simple things. But he talks about if he loses his pocket watch, I can't find where my pocket watch is. Well, you know, I'm not going to fret about that. Lord, would you reveal to me exactly where my pocket watch is? God either will or he won't. And if he does, thank you, Jesus. If he doesn't, then I don't need that pocket watch anyway. Maybe it'll bless somebody else with. And he found that he was praying all the time. And God would answer hundreds and thousands of prayers when we take everything to him in prayer and not just the stuff we can handle ourselves. Make sense? We view God sometimes as a CEO. We have to knock on his door. Uh, excuse me, can I bother you with something? Uh, yeah, what you got? I had this question. And really? You bother me with something like that? Don't you know my time is valuable? Would you deal with that yourself and only bring me the big stuff? Wasn't the big stuff George Mueller took to the Lord. He did like the scriptures we talked about last week. He took everything to him, in everything. By prayer and supplication, make your requests known unto God. And then the peace of God, knowing he hears and he's in control, will transform us completely. Number six, the conclusion. Thus, through prayer to God and the study of his word and reflection, I come to a deliberate judgment according to the best of my ability and knowledge. In other words, this is based on reading, waiting, praying. This is what I think God's will is. And if my mind is at peace, because when we take those petitions to him, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If I experience that peace, not just once, but he says uh, after two or three more times, that he proceeds accordingly. And his life was a testimony to how God answers prayers. So where do we go from here? I know I'm having to go through this rather quickly, but I want to, uh, I want to quote a passage or a quote from you from a famed missionary that you should always remember. It says, expect great things from God. Would we agree? Therefore, attempt great things for God. If I expect great things from God, I'm going to attempt that great things from God. And this was William Carey, who was a missionary to India and known as the father of modern missions. Expect great things from God because he's a mighty God and a powerful God. And therefore, if I expect great things from God, attempt great things from God. Jump into the deep end of the pool. Trust him explicitly and see if he will not do incredible things in our life because he actually promises to do that. Again, this is my favorite doxology, the third chapter of the book of Ephesians. And I want to go through this slowly so that you'll truly understand what it says by simply asking questions of the passage. Now to him. Well, to who? Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you the name. We're not going to talk about God the Father, or God the Son, or the Holy Spirit. Now, not to him, but I'm going to describe him by his attributes. Now to him who is able to do what? What is him, God, able to do? Exceedingly abundantly above and beyond all that I can ask or think. God can do beyond what I can even muster up the courage and faith to even ask and verbalize or worse than that, even think in my mind. The greatest thing God can do, he can do beyond that. 
He can do greater than that because he is able to do that. How? How, God, can you do that? How can you move in our lives like that? I mean, what, what causes that to happen? Well, it's simple. There's a power that works in you. It's not out there. It's not on Mount Sinai. It's not up in heaven being doled out miserly. But there's a power that works in you. And that power that works in you is God himself and the person of the Holy Spirit. The key to our, our understanding our life with Christ. It is the person of the Godhead who functions in earth today. God's on his throne. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And the Holy Spirit is here right now. So to him, to God, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly upon what I can ask or even think in my mind, how? According to that power that works in us. And where is that power contained? In the church, which is made up of individual believers who are inhabited by the power of the Holy Spirit, God himself. So let there be glory. Let him be glorified in the church, which is filled with receptacles, tabernacles of that Holy Spirit by Christ Jesus not just to his generation, but to all generations forever and ever and ever. Let it be so, so be it. Do you believe that's true? Do you? And if so, what would it be like to have the confidence to not just approach the throne of glory for grace, but the confidence to approach God knowing that what you pray for is in perfect sync with his will? And that comes from understanding the word, letting the Holy Spirit indwell you and empower you and seeing what God will do. Now, I have a suggestion for you. I don't want you to take my word for this or George Mueller's word for this. I would like to give you a challenge to see if you're willing to do that. I would like you to take one hour a day. I don't have any spare time. Well, sure you do. You're on Facebook. Fox News, uh, Gab, uh, whatever the other th social media things we are, or we sit and watch some television show to unwind or something like that. Take an hour of that and just chuck it. Set it aside. I don't, I don't want to deal with that right now. I just want to basically work on my fellowship with him. And spend one hour this week, one hour, more than you do now, whatever it is, not studying devotional books, not reading about evangelism, not not systematically going through and trying to determine Greek words and stuff of that nature, just reading his word for the point of fellowship, for the point of, of just understanding who he is and see if this week your prayer life doesn't change. One hour a day, not talking about adding something to your life, we're talking about taking something that is marginally good and replacing it with something that is best. Just reallocating some of your time and see if what George Mueller says is not true. Will you do that? And the next week when we come together, hopefully we'll have some testimonies about how your burden is easier. You've experienced peace and stuff that you were worried about. Um, I think... Uh, I think God will be glorified in that. And let's give him a chance to work. Amen? Let me pray.